Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, man, I'm still digging the sand out from between my toes after the uh, four days I spent on the Chris Jericho cruise, which was kind of a blast, to say the least. Really, really had a great time meeting a lot of people. Again, you know, seeing a lot of guys that I've worked with in the past and, and ladies that I've worked with in the past. And you got to really tip my hat to Chris Jericho and his team six man that put together that event because it was a really, really well-run cruise. Everything went really smoothly with the exception of some pretty choppy seas on one of the mornings, but that only lasted about uh, a couple hours and everything was fine. But, uh, yeah, just getting back into the swing of things here. Uh, we're Mrs. B and I are winding down our last week in Florida. And then we're going to be coming up to hang with you and Megan for a couple of days. And then we're going to make our way up to Minnesota to visit family and friends. And then ultimately, eventually, finally on our way back to Cody, Wyoming. So, uh, just getting geared up for all that. Well, I'm excited about you coming to visit and I'm excited about what we're doing next week here on the show with hashtag ask Eric anything. Uh, if you haven't already go out of your way to follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks and uh, be sure to look for an image pinned near the top where you get to pick Eric's brain next week. But unfortunately we're talking about a clash of the champions. That was not the best ever. Clash of the Champions 30 today is our topic. It went down on January 25th, 1995 from Caesar's Palace. And that is uh, an interesting look for WCW because we know that the next year we're going to have Halloween Havoc become a staple at the MGM Grand. And it was a big part of what you guys did for a long time. But before you were there, you were at Caesar's. How did the relationship with Caesar's come to be? I mean, it wasn't really much of a relationship. They had a, a venue there that typically was used for boxing, uh, some of the smaller boxing carts. And we just reached out to Caesars and to see if it was available and, and booked that venue. But there was, a, unlike the MGM Grand, which we developed a relationship with, with that really started with Zane Breslov's relationship with the folks over at MGM, this was a, uh, a, a cold call, more or less. We just knew we wanted to come from Vegas. Um, Napti which if you don't know, if you're listening to this, NAPTI was the National Association of Television Producers and something or another, whatever it's called. It was a real, but NAPTI was a really big deal back in the, you know, the 80s in particular, uh, in, in early 90s, when television syndication was uh, a, a very big part of television business in general, but wrestling in particular. And if, if you don't mind, Conrad, I'll take a moment just to kind of dig into the weeds a little bit here because, you know, we often talk, those of us who are in the business and certainly including you now that you've, you know, been doing what you're doing, you know, for so long and, and have so much knowledge. Uh, a lot of people listening, they hear the term NAPTI, it's an acronym, obviously, don't really know what it is or what it represents and how it fit into the industry. But back when television syndication, and, and I mean syndication 
uh, what I mean by syndication is where, for example, and with WCW, we, we obviously produce the, uh, you know, WCW Saturday night for TBS and uh, WCW main event for TBS on Sunday, right? But we had WCW Pro, which a show, which was a show, and it and it was produced on the road in in venues and arenas. It wasn't a compilation show or a clip show. It was just, it it was a standalone show, but WCW Pro was a show that we produced specifically for syndication. Syndication really means uh, you, you produce this tape and then you have a contractual relationship with independent television stations all around the country. And you produce that show, you edit it down, and you distribute it to your your network of independent television stations, and they air it. And there's two reasons why we did that <clears throat> or why it was done. We weren't, do, we weren't the only ones doing it, we meaning Turner. WC, or WWE did the exact same thing. Uh, but the, the reason we had to really focus on syndication and invest heavily in syndication is because back in the 80s, early 90s, as powerful as TBS was, WTBS as a superstation, it still, the network didn't have 90 or 95% coverage. That was early, early cable and WTBS was one of the more powerful uh, cable superstations, <clears throat> excuse me, including uh, WGN, which was also a superstation. But in order to uh, attract advertisers, you had to have a certain percentage of the U.S. So, for example, and I don't know what the numbers were exactly, so please don't ask. But, uh, for example, if WTBS Superstation had an 88% or an 86% footprint coverage, meaning it was available in 86 or 88 percent of the households in the United States, we needed to augment augment that percentage and get it as close to 96 or 98 percent as we possibly could. Because if you didn't have at least 96 or 98 percent coverage in the U.S. to available households, advertisers weren't interested in you. So WTBS, as strong as it was, wasn't a powerful enough platform to attract advertisers without augmenting that network, excuse me, the cable outlet, with the network of syndication stations that we had around the U.S. So, for example, if and again, these numbers, I'm pulling them out of thin air. I don't know what they really are. But, for example, a major market, uh, let's say Chicago, probably, let's say it, it represented 3% of the U.S. In, ter in terms of population of households. Well, that 3% or whatever number of households were represented in, in that market were aggregated, if you will, to the TBS number, which allowed us to get to 96 or 98 or 100% coverage. So that's the relationship with syndication and cable. And NAPI was the one convention that took place every year, uh, and it still takes place, but that's the one, one um, convention that's held every year where independent television producers and large television producers, some very, very large, uh, would all get together and the television networks from around the, the country would come together to here and the, the television networks and the buyers for those networks, program directors, general managers, would meet with the various producers and look at new shows that were coming out specifically for syndication. You know, one example of that is Thunder in Paradise, which was a syndicated uh, television series that was put together by Reicher Entertainment, which was the same people that were behind Baywatch. 
And I say all that because Thunder in Paradise was a, a syndicated show that was developed strictly for syndication. It didn't obviously involve Hulk Hogan. And that's why I wanted to use that as an example. But anyway, you'd go to these conventions and, for example, WCW, WWE, um, Reicher Entertainment, Lionsgate Entertainment, which is still one of the largest television companies around, or studios now, uh, would all meet and they'd have this big convention. And these conventions at one time were really huge. I went to one uh, in the early 90s. It might have been 94 before this one in Miami uh, where they had the Eagles. You know, one of the big, uh, and it might have been Reicher, actually, because they were having so much success with Baywatch. Baywatch was a cash cow for, for several years. And I think it was Reicher Entertainment because I got an invitation to go through my relationships with the folks over at Reicher. And they had the Eagles come in and play for this, this uh, convention. You know, so you got to sit there and watch an Eagles concert for free if you were part of the, you know, Reicher Entertainment invited group. So it was a really, really big deal. And this year it was taking place in 1995. The Nappy Convention was taking place in Las Vegas, which is why we were there. Well, and you're here to make some money. Uh, one of the things that I, I found really fascinating in my research for this show is at this time, this is the largest gate in Clash history. Even bigger than the first one, which, you know, fans look back and really romanticize, you know, the 45 minute time limit draw that sort of made Sting a household name in his match with Ric Flair that went head to head with WrestleMania four. This only has 2,300 paying fans and it's still the biggest gate ever. Uh, it's more than $60,000, which we know that when the NWO comes to town, you're going to blow that out of the water, you know, in 96 and certainly in 97, but ticket prices here. Meltzer would call high, and I guess they were at the time somewhat. Uh, $50 was your highest ticket price, so your price points were 50, 40, 25, and 15. I guess two questions I have here. One, how much of the higher ticket price than normal was based on your overhead at Caesars Palace, and how much was just based on, well, it's Las Vegas, we think we can get away with it? It was a little bit of both, um, actually. And, and also you had to factor in that the venue we were in wasn't a very big venue. Right. I mean, we probably packed it with 2,300 people or whatever, however many people were there. I can't remember what you just said. 3,500 in attendance, 2,300 paying. So some comps, but some of those comps, you know, and again, I think some, some of our listeners are in the loop on this, but like when one of those big boxing matches come to Las Vegas and they say, oh, it was an immediate sellout and we had a record gate. A lot of those are what's called casino buys. So they're using it as a way to entice some of their quote unquote whales, their gamblers to come in town. Hey, we've got, you know, Mayweather tickets or we've got Tyson Fury tickets or whatever. Did a dynamic like that exist at all in pro wrestling? Was Caesar saying, hey, we, we're going to need 300 of these or we're going to need however many of these to use for our sort of high rollers or whoever's in town that weekend as bait, if you will, to stay at Caesars and come gamble. Did they have some sort of arrangement like that with you or were you all on your own? No, we definitely did. <clears throat> and that was one of the advantages, I guess, of doing an event in Caesars palace or at the MGM grand or any, any of the big casinos, because they, the, the, the casinos had, you know, a database of, Locals, you know, high rollers, people that like to come to shows. So, um, the the casino, the casino actually became a marketing partner for us in many ways. Because remember, this is 1995. 
early 1995. Hulk Hogan had only been with us for about six months. He came in on whatever it was, July 1994, whatever the date was. So, you know, there was we were still we were still emerging. You know, we, we weren't a startup necessarily because WCW had been around for a while, but it had been stagnant and, and, and almost gone out of business several times uh, leading up to this point. So we didn't really have a lot of momentum. We weren't a big draw, although at this point we had Hogan, we had Nash, and we were beginning to create uh, quite a bit of, uh, of a buzz, uh, which the word I don't think really was used back then, but in, in today's vernacular. We were, so we were growing, we were emerging, but we still we couldn't really draw the kind of audience that we needed for television, especially a special event like Clash of the Champions for, for, for TBS without, you know, the support in, in the marketing partnership that we had with the casinos. So it, it wasn't just, you know, that the casinos really wanted these tickets. It's that we wanted the casinos to want the tickets because in many respects, they could do a much better job marketing uh, in Las Vegas than we could. Um, we could buy radio time. We could buy a billboard. We could take out an ad in a paper. We could do all kinds of things, but we didn't have that database and relationship with the local community the same way that the casinos did. Well, it's fascinating because, you know, according to the observer, the original plan wasn't for this show to even happen in Las Vegas. Uh, it was all about the, the television convention that you mentioned. He writes the reason the clash was moved from its original site of Hampton, Virginia to Las Vegas was the NAPTI convention being held in Las Vegas from the 24th through the 26th. The idea was that WCW would hold a major event, get a major TV exec there and show off a hot product with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. And while it didn't appear that there were any TV types with the exception of two or three faces like Mitch Ackerman from Disney that were there for big shows all the time. Anyway, WCW did come out strong from a psychological standpoint from NAPTI because for the first year in history, they stole the spotlight from the WWF. And I think that's probably something that you and I have talked a little bit about, but I don't know that we've hammered it home enough. The WWF had become the brand in wrestling. It's almost like, and I don't even know how much people pay attention to this, but commonly people will say, Hey, do you have a Kleenex? Well, really that's a tissue. Well, hey, do you have a band aid? Well, really that's a bandage but it had just become synonymous with the item. And so like even these days, when people talk about mixed martial arts, they say, oh, he does ultimate fighting or, oh, he does that UFC stuff, regardless of whether or not it's actually in the UFC. And you guys struggled with that even through, I mean, even once the NWO caught fire in mainstream, when people would talk about Hulk Hogan or the NWO, they would still refer to it as WWF because it had been so well ingrained in the American pop culture psyche through the eighties that you're going to be like fighting an uphill battle. And I assume that when you have now the two biggest stars, you've got to sort of hit the reset button on everyone's thinking and let them know, no, the WWF is down there and they've got Bret Hart and the undertaker, but we've got Hulk Hogan and we've got Randy Savage and just sort of press the reset button, almost like a men in black type moment where no, no, no. This is, that was then this is now how much of a challenge was that? And, and how much of that sort of thinking went into these type conventions from your perspective? That was a massive challenge. And I'm glad you brought that up because you're right, you know, and I'm sure we could, you know, give other examples of people referring to a product, uh, by its trademark name, uh, 
rather than an actual description of the product. Um, you know, people will walk into, you know, a restaurant and say, give me a Coke. Sure. Well, do you want Coke or Pepsi? No, I want a Pepsi, but you asked for a Coke, <laughs> you know, um, there, there's a lot of examples of that, but that was a big challenge for us. And in many ways, you know, there were certain advantages that I had when, um, I, I kind of took over management at WCW, um, clearly, uh, being owned by the network was one of them. In, in the most significant one, but WCW was at a really uh, substantial disadvantage in many respects because we hadn't branded WCW hadn't branded themselves by the time that I got there in 92, 93. And, and until I started taking over in 94, there was no effort at all to really brand WCW on a national scale. And as you pointed out, you know, commentators in the media or sports writers or anybody else would return would re refer to professional wrestling in general as WWF like they were the only ones and it was a constant battle ironically even though we had Hulk Hogan and we had WWF because Hogan and Savage were so well branded in the WWF that even when we brought them over to WCW people still thought we were WWF and would oftentimes mistakenly refer to us as such. And not that I want to spend my, you know, Sunday morning or Monday morning, <clears throat> you know, um, running Dave Meltzer through the meat grinder again, because I'm just not in the mood. You know, how would Dave Meltzer visually recognize a television executive when he's never been in the television business? And by the way, Mitch Ackerman, who he did recognize, was only there because he was a friend of a lot of a wrestler, a lot of the wrestlers, including Roddy Piper, and came to a lot of events that were on the West Coast. He wasn't there as a Disney representative. And by the way, that's who Mitch Ackerman um, worked for back in 1995. But he wasn't in the programming content uh, part of the company. He was a producer. He didn't buy anything. So he wasn't there as an executive. He was there as a fan. There were a large number of, of television executives that came to the event. Not that Dave, given the fact that, you know, he, he, he covered, you know, the business remotely from his basement in Sacramento or wherever he lives, he wouldn't have recognized them if they delivered pizza to his front door. So that we did get a lot of, uh, a, a lot of interest, primarily because of Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. Frankly, um, we did get a lot of interest from TV execs, and it was a very successful uh, decision to to put the event on there in, in hopes of getting some more traction there. Rob Garner um, was our VP of syndication at the time, and I remember having dinner with him uh, a couple nights later uh, after it was over, and he was beaming from ear to ear with the success that he had because previously WCW would go there and nobody would care because nobody knew who they were. I'm just fascinated by this entire, you know, thing you've got to overcome now with, uh, the WWF being such a big brand and this particular NAPTI convention has a very interesting Vince McMahon, Bruce Pritchard story. Have you ever talked to Bruce about this NAPTI convention and his exchange or conversation he had in private with Vince? I did not, but I'm dying to hear it because I have my own little tidbit, my own little nugget. My own little Vince McMahon nugget that took place during this event. But let's hear Bruce's first. Well, I'll let Bruce tell the full story on something to wrestle. But he told me years ago that Vince was so um, pissed off that Hulk Hogan was here 
and that you guys had stolen the spotlight. You had a much bigger display. You had more traffic. You had, you know, you had the momentum at this point and he felt so betrayed by Hogan and Savage and he was planning a stunt and a stunt that never actually happened, but there was going to be a Vince McMahon confrontation stunt, uh, and they were going to film it sort of guerrilla style and try to figure out what to do with it. And of course that didn't wind up happening. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm curious to hear from your perspective of Vince McMahon nugget from the same convention. Well, and this is just a little, a little rib, if you will. But when I got to Vegas and I got there a couple of days earlier and I was hanging around with, uh, my buddy at the time who, who has since passed away, um, Zane Bresloff and Zane was really wired in Las Vegas. I mean, he spent a lot of, t- he loved to gamble. Zane had, I don't want to say a problem because he was pretty successful at it. Uh, but he was, he was a, he was a huge player in Vegas he knew everybody and everybody knew Zane. And when I got there, cause Zane, Zane knew that I like to stir some shit and, and I would do some wacky stuff. And, and Zane and I were having a dinner one time and Zane, you know, he wasn't a drinker. He was, he wasn't a partier. He just liked to gamble. In fact, I don't think I ever saw Zane really drink as a matter of fact, he may have, but if, if he did, it was very, very uh, insignificant. But for the most part, he was, a teetotal of that love to gamble, but he loved us to shit up too. And we were out to dinner one night and he goes, Hey, I just found out. Cause he had some contacts over at treasure Island, the casino on the strip. And I just found out that, you know, Vince McMahon is staying at treasure Island. I said, really, how'd you find that out? He said, oh, I've got some people I know over there, which didn't surprise me. He knew everybody everywhere. I said, wow, well, that's, that's really cool. Maybe we should swing by and say hi. He goes, why don't we cancel his room? I went, really? Could we pull that off? And I thought, wow, if if because we were there a few days ahead, and and Vince, I don't think was there yet. I thought, wait a minute. In fact, I knew he wasn't. Zane knew he wasn't. And when Zane told me he hadn't arrived yet, I thought, man, if we can cancel his room, there's no way he's going to be able to get another one at the last minute because Vegas during the Nappy Convention was like you know Mardi Gras, New Orleans, you know. You may have a hotel that you booked a year in advance, but if you cancel that room and then show up day of hoping to get another one, good luck. You're going to be staying out in Laughlin, Nevada. So I thought, what a what what a better way just to kick things off than to cancel cancel Vince's room. So he's got to find another place to stay. So we, yeah, we did that. You canceled his room. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It sounds like the most juvenile fucking idea ever. Oh, it was, it was like high school shit, but it was fun as hell. I, I was, and I was hoping to hear about it, read about it, but you know, I'm, I'm guessing Vince no sold it and was somehow able to, I'm sure it cost him a couple bucks, but find a way to get a room. But yeah, we, we, we canceled his room. Zane was able to pull that off because of the people that he knew probably misrepresented himself to a degree. I love it. It was great. It's such a great story. It's, it's so Eric Bischoff, uh, something else that is Eric Bischoff, whether we like it or not, we're coming off the main event of your biggest pay-per-view of the year. Starcade. This one from 1994, that main event went down in Nashville, Tennessee, Hulk Hogan, the biggest wrestling star there ever was defending his world title against 
Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. Uh, after that, of course, Hulk's going to start a feud with a real main eventer, Vader. They're going to have the first ever match at the Super Brawl pay-per-view in February. So that's where we're headed. Uh, we should mention that, uh, there's still the seeds of what is going to be with nitro with all the international flair, uh, starting to bubble to the surface here a little bit. Meltzer would report the cruiserweight tournament has been delayed for a while because nobody has gotten their act together. As far as bringing in outside talent, well, Eric Bischoff in Japan this week for the Tokyo dome, it's expected he'll request one or two wrestlers like Otani and Benoit. They have a verbal deal with Antonio Pena to send in two wrestlers. And Pena is looking to send Estrada and Eddie Guerrero. Although I've heard Bischoff didn't want Guerrero. Uh, I don't uh, now. Obviously he even says I've heard Bischoff didn't want Guerrero. Do you remember ever thinking maybe Eddie wasn't ready for prime time or is this more rumor in innuendo? Yeah. You call it rumor in innuendo. I call it pure fiction. It's just Dave Meltzer being Dave Meltzer. He wrote something because he had to, he had his 10,000 word quota for his toilet paper. He called the wrestling observer and he had to fill it up and he just makes shit up. We know that anybody that listens to the show, anybody that listens to Bruce's show, anybody that's even read regularly read Meltzer stuff and, and has witnessed how much of it is just pure bullshit and fabrication knows that he just makes stuff up to make himself sound like he's wired into an industry that he's really not that wired into. He's probably got a small network of stooges that work out there in the wrestling, you know, in, in various wrestling companies still to this day who feed him the information that they want him to parrot because he, they know that's basically what he is. In this case, he's either making it up or was stupid enough, which is highly probable to just repeat something or infer something as a possibility that some stooge fed him because everybody knew if you want to read it, just feed it to Dave. He's not smart enough and doesn't work hard enough at what he does. It doesn't have enough integrity within what he did then and what he does now to second source or confirm with any of the principles involved. So it's just good. You know, it's just more, more diarrhea for the sewage pipe called, you know, the wrestling observer, but it wasn't true at all. It wasn't true at all. In fact, you know, Eddie was one of the original cruiserweights that I brought in. Uh, so it, it, it makes no sense on the surface, but neither does most of the stuff that you read in Meltzer's dirt sheet. Hypothetically, did you run into Dave on the uh, on the boat? No, and I'm glad I didn't. Um, you know, I was kind of – look, I – First of all, Dave's a pussy, so it's not like I didn't want to run into him for fear of confrontation. In fact, it's the opposite of that, knowing how fired up I can still get, even at this advanced age <laughs> and, and and clearly not physical you know, condition um, to, to go tango with anybody. I, I was more concerned for my own level of reaction uh, than anybody else's. Uh, and I, yeah, I just didn't want to get on a cruise ship with that kind of attitude because I, I tend to get that way. Uh, still to this day, not as often, not, not to the same degree, but it is part of my DNA. And I didn't run into him, but interestingly enough, Booker T did. Now, I wasn't there. I, and, and unlike Dave Meltzer, I don't give detail or description or you know, talk about things that one guy said and the other guy said if I wasn't there to hear it. But I, did, I had heard 
from someone who was at this event where this scene took place there that there was this confrontation where Dave Meltzer decided he was going to join Booker T and, and Ric Flair, uh, who were sitting at a table, you know, I think in a green room and Dave just decided, Hey, I'm going to go up, sit down and, you know, hang out with, hang out with the boys being the jock sniffer that he really is. Although he says he's not, he really, really is. Um, and Booker T looked at him from what I've been told. I wasn't there. I didn't see it and went absolutely off on him. And Dave being the pussy that he is, of course, tucked his tail and ran. And I, I heard that and I thought, okay, you know, Chavo Guerrero is, Guerrero is the one that told me. And I heard that and went, wow, that's really interesting. I, I, I need to, hopefully I'll run into Booker again before this trip is over and ask him about it. And sure enough, as I was getting off the boat, actually it's a ship keep calling it a boat like it's a 14 foot fishing boat you know out on a lake when I, as i was disembarking off the ship in miami i was like the fourth one off the ship uh booker t and charmel were right ahead of me and i asked booker about it and he got all lit up again it was like 7 30 in the morning i said booker sorry man i wish I would. i'm sorry i brought it up he goes no man i like talking about it but yeah booker wanted to rip his head off uh, and, and I think it's important, you know, the, look, Dave has relationships with certain people, whatever. Uh, the vast majority of people who have been in the industry can't stand him. And Booker T is probably right at the front of the line. Yeah. I learned, uh, this last year, how much, uh, Booker does not like Mr. Meltzer, but I don't know, man. I, uh, I still like the observer. I know that makes me a bad person, but. No, it just makes you a poorly informed person, but that's okay. <laughs> you're, you're still a good person. You're just a good person that likes to read a lot of nonsense. And it's one of the reasons people like, you know, a lot of people like to read the National Enquirer, even though they know it's, even if that still even exists, I don't know. But, the, you know, the tabloid news, people love reading that stuff. They know that it's bullshit, but they like reading bullshit. And that's fine. But you have to take it for what it really is and not put too much stock in it. Um. Did you ever, I mean, I, I can't believe we're all the way back, you know, down the rabbit hole on the Meltzer stuff. I mean, have you ever just like hung out with Meltzer? Like just in a social, like not wrestling, not, not, not business, not just the facts, ma'am, reporter, talent, a subject, but just like have a couple beers or eat breakfast or whatever. Mm. I, I don't think so. I mean, if, if I did, it was brief or it was incidental, meaning there may have been other people around and it would have been a group setting. And, you know, cause it was a time when, you know, I, I, I would talk to Dave. I, I opened it. I opened my, you know, I opened my office up to Dave. If he had a quite, you know, and the reason I did it is because he was so poor at, you know, reporting facts. And I understood that, you know, if nobody will talk to him well, then he's going to report whatever he hears you know, because he's not going to do any work. He's not going to actually go to events and, and write about them. He's going to rely on somebody who bought a ticket who is going to tell, who's going to report back to Dave what his show was like based on, you know, Dave's own you know, prejudices and agendas. So I thought, well, what a better way to try to fix that than just to open it up. And, and Zane Breslov was, um, you know, was the person to convince me to do that. And, and I did and, until I got to the point where, you know, even though I gave him access, he would still write stupid shit. And I don't know. Well, fuck it. You, you know, can't, can't, 
change his colors. He is what he is. He's never going to really do the work. He's never going to have the integrity that, that he should have. He's not going to check his sources. He's just going to write bullshit. So that was the end of that. So there may have been a period of time, you know, when I was trying to develop a relationship with Dave through, through Zane, uh, where we may have gotten together. Nothing stands out of my mind. I can't, you know, recall one incident, but it's possible, I guess. Super nice guys. The reason I mentioned, I have been able to hang out with him in social settings and, uh, great guy. And I just think that you guys would, if, if you met him and you didn't know he was Dave Meltzer, you guys would be fast friends, but that will never happen. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> no. Uh, Meltzer would write, uh, Hogan has a meeting this week to discuss revival of thunder and paradise with the new name thunder force, uh, in which a four person team of Hogan sting, Mr. T and a female martial artist would all be equal co-stars. Of course, we know this didn't come to pass. How close was this to becoming reality? A sting Mr. T Hogan TV show in 1995. This is the first I've he I'm hearing about it. So it, and I'm not saying that there hadn't been a conversation that sounded something like, Hey, what if we did this or because of Hulk's uh, relationship with Reicher entertainment and the people that were producing thunder and paradise, it may have been a Hulk Hogan idea. I don't know, but it was not something that I was a part of or discussion that I was involved in, nor do I remember hearing it until just now. So, uh, who knows? It could have been just chatter that they reported as fact, which again, not to beat it to death, but that wasn't unusual or, um, it, it, it could have, could have been a conversation that somebody had at one point. What if that, uh, like I said, this somehow made its way to the newsletter and somebody who needed a safety net themselves is the honky tonk man. He makes the observer here. The honky tonk man deal was he refused to do a job for Johnny be bad as asked at Starcade. According to one source, he would have done it had he received a contract and WCW was willing to offer him one, but the two sides were about $50,000 apart on a price tag. And it looks as though Arn Anderson will be replacing him against Johnny B. Bad at the clash. Bunkhouse Buck worked as his replacement on the house shows this week. On the live show, Bischoff joked that hockey talk man couldn't stand the heat and went back to school teaching. Hockey was working as a physical education teacher before he went back to WCW. How ironic is that? Honky talk man, a physical education teacher. Just think about that. I had, never, I had never heard of this in my life that he was a PE teacher. I don't know that it's true. I, I, I don't know what he did, but if it's true, just define irony. Honky talk man is a physical education teacher. That is ironic, ironic as hell. Well, it's one of your favorite stories. Um, and I didn't realize as I was getting going, researching this show that it happened, you know, around December, January here. This is remarkable. The job he refused to do was around Starcade. Do you remember that? Mm, I don't. I mean, I remember the incident. I don't remember the event or the venue. I just remember the incident. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty clear in my mind. But, you know, the background of it, I, I don't remember. Could have been. One of my favorite Bischoff lines ever is, if I could wake up every day and fire the honky-tonk man one more time every day, it would be the best possible way to start my day. No, it would. You know, a cup of coffee. You know, stretch out a little bit, take the dog for a walk, and fire the honky tonk. Man. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> oh, I love it when you've got a case of the red ass. Let's keep it going here. Let's talk. Oh, man. 
you're really going to get the red ass here. Meltzer writes, supposedly WCW's losses this year are going to be cut to three and a half million as opposed to the five to six million in previous years. But that figure is misleading because Hogan's salary comes from Turner Home Entertainment's ledger rather than the WCW ledger. And Hogan, between salary and bonuses and percentages, would be no less than $2.7 million and probably considerably higher for his six months. So the real losses are the highest ever. Because of this, there's considerable pressure to cut those losses by knocking about half a million off the payroll. And you can imagine the internal fighting over whose friend's paycheck gets nailed. I know you're going to blow a gasket, but did Hogan's salary come from the Turner Home Entertainment Ledger? I've never heard that. That's because it's not true. That's why you've never heard it. And I, look, I, this is so profoundly fucking stupid. I can't even really get upset about it. I mean, this is like, you know, a, a six-year-old kid coming up and saying something to you that made absolutely no sense. You can't get mad at the six-year-old kid. It's just a six-year-old kid. And in this case, I can't even get mad about it because it's just Meltzer being Meltzer. Turner Home Entertainment was barely an operating entity. It was more of a pass-through and existed only to take Turner content, whether it be WCW, National Geographic, you know, any of the Cartoon Network materials, and distribute them through a home video uh, distribution network that they had developed. That's all they were. And to suggest that Hogan's salary, or, or you know, salary for lack of a better term, he, although he wasn't an employee, he was an independent contractor, but simply stated, to suggest that Hogan's income. fees, income, were the responsibility and were born on the Turner Home Entertainment side of the books is... It's just profoundly fucking stupid. Not true. Let's keep it rolling here. Um, your boy, Van Hammer, whose real name is Mark Hill. My boy. Why is he my boy? I didn't hire him. That was Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes loved Van Hammer. Nothing against, obviously. Dusty loved Johnny B. Badge. Dusty saw a lot of talent and a lot of people. But he wasn't my guy. I didn't hire him. No, I kept him around longer than I should. That was on me. But I didn't hire him. He wasn't my guy. Stop that. Uh, see, now that's that's the Dave Meltzer in you. That's, no. that's what, see, that's what happens when Hang you on. read that shit. I said, your boy, because he ain't mine, because he no-showed StarCast. Oh, well, see? <laughs> no, nobody likes Van Hammer. On I wish show. he would have no-showed WCW. I Dude, taken- this is I a don't- hilarious story. I think you're going to love this one. I'm going to read this word for word from Meltzer's account. Van Hammer was arrested on two counts of possession of illegally prescribed drugs. Hammer turned himself in a few weeks ago, uh, while also arrested, uh, was Lawrenceville, Georgia physician, Brian Dillingham, who wrote the prescriptions, no details on what drugs were involved. However, the humorous part of the story was when WCW was contacted in the newspaper, a spokesperson claimed hammer hadn't worked for the company in two years. There was a guy who looked just like him, who had the same name and unfortunately wrestled just like him on TV a few weeks ago, just before he turned himself in. I don't know why, but I found this fucking hysterical that WCW would say, no, that guy hadn't worked here in two years because really, and honestly, would anyone have even fucking noticed? I, 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 you know, once again, this sounds to me because once again, 
you know, it was an anonymous source or a representative. So there's no names involved. So there's no way to verify it, no way to check it, no way to contact somebody and say, hey, did this really happen? Which is typical. That's that's the National Enquirer-esque um, tone of the garbage that they produces. But if if let's just give him the benefit of the doubt, give Dave the benefit of the doubt in this situation and assume that perhaps it's true. That individual, that representative would have been, and I, I'm at a disadvantage here because Alan Sharp, who that eventually became, you know, our head of PR, came into WCW, but I'm not sure if he was there right at this point. It may have been later in 95. So the timeline on, on his employment as our PR spokesperson is not clear to me. But if it wasn't Alan Sharp, who, by the way, was a very, very buttoned up guy former military guy, straight up, I mean, really, really credible guy that would have never lied. He just, because he took his career very, very seriously. He was a true pro. Love him to death. He was a great guy, great asset. If it wasn't Alan Sharp, it would have been Mike Weber. So, I, and I, I can't imagine Mike Weber out and out lying and suggesting something like that. So in either case, assuming that Dave's reporting was true, it had to have been one of those two individuals. And I just can't imagine either one of them being dumb enough uh, and unprofessional enough to think that anybody would buy something, especially a newspaper outlet that is obviously looking for source material and wants credible information, isn't going to do a little bit of research and say, well, wait a minute, he was just on TV two weeks ago. What do you mean he wasn't with you for the last two years? I mean, that's a that's a hard one to you know for anybody to buy if that were true, and I, I just don't believe it was. I think it was more nonsense. Let's talk about where business is, sort of year over year, from ninety two, ninety three, and ninety four, and we'll take a look at like December, which is our most recent month, our complete month. Your average house show attendance during December nineteen ninety two nine hundred and thirty fans. In December of 93, it's down to 640. In December of 94, it's 2,970. It's really remarkable. I mean, because when you look back and you see sort of where, you know, everything is. In 92, Flair's not here, Hogan's not here. In 93, Flair's here, but Hogan's not here. In 94, Hogan, Savage, and Flair are here at 2,970. It's, it's unbelievable, but that doesn't seem to affect television ratings. Let's take a look at December again, December 92, your average rating 2.2, December 93, 2.0, December 94, 1.9. You know, you have been critical and I'm sure you have the data to support it, especially when we read some of the smaller gates that house shows effectively weren't uh, profitable for WCW. It does feel like you had tremendous growth when compared to prior years, but still not enough to, you know, create profit, huh? Well, I mean, there's a reason for that. And I, you know, and I, I think it's <clears throat> on the surface, the way you just kind of laid out that timeline and all of it was true. I'm obviously accurate. You, you do your research and I'm sure it's true. Um, it's so one thing that Meltzer does do pretty well is uh, report on gates and revenues and things like that, because that's a relatively easy thing to do. 
uh, doesn't have to crack a sweat. Um, but to suggest, for example, you know, when you said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing you now, I don't remember exactly what you said, but the fact, you know, 93, you know, Hogan wasn't there, but Ric Flair was, but we were probably in, you know, the average attendance of 700 or whatever the average gate was uh, in, in attendance. That wasn't a reflection on Ric Flair. Oh, no, no. I'm just saying the difference of Flair and Hogan and Macho, that now it feels like, man, you've got a lot of the major stars in the business at that point. And, you know, we've sort of talked about Hogan being a game changer from an, uh, an ad sales standpoint when guys, you know, are, are, are reaching for their briefcase and they've got Hulk Hogan. I mean, that's a really cool sort of Trump card to pull out, but the remarkable difference of sort of a pre Hogan WCW and a post Hogan WCW it's night and day in, in, in every metric. Yeah. And, and I think, again, I got to slow down here a little bit cause I'm on my eighth cup of coffee. So one unhealthy, well, not the only one unhealthy thing I do, but it is one of the unhealthy things I do. I consume a vast, just copious amounts of caffeine, especially when I know I'm doing this podcast. Um, look, the, the, the attendance came up because the base wrestling audience, I don't want to call them hardcore, but the active, passionate, most loyal professional wrestling fans certainly came out to the arenas. But there's not enough of a base there, at least there wasn't for WCW at the time. Um, there wasn't enough of a base of that audience to have the same impact on a national television rating. So in other words, we could go to a local market in 1992 or 93 when Bill Watts was basically the architect of the, the house show business. And hold on one second. Mrs. B's bringing me some more caffeine on number nine. Conrad, I hope you're tied to the chair because this is going to be crazy. <laughs> oh, here we go. Back in the 80s, it would have been another instrument to get me going in the morning. But now it's caffeine, good caffeine. But um, thank you, Mrs. B. <laughs> she looks so hot in the morning. It's just crazy. Um but as I was saying, there, there's, there was enough of a base audience. For example, we would go to uh, Hampton, Virginia, which is the last city that you mentioned where Clash was supposed to, I guess, take place. Well, Hampton, Virginia, you've got a pretty you know, strong base of wrestling fans. When that strong base of wrestling fans found out or knew or became aware that Hogan and Savage and others were on the card, sure, you're going to get a, a, a significant impact in terms of your, your live gate. But that didn't necessarily translate to the national television audience because WCW was kind of off of everybody's radar. You know, we were number two, but we were we might as well have been number 32 compared to to WWE. We were so insignificant to the national television audience uh, that while the impact, the initial impact of Hogan and Savage had a dramatic effect on our house show business, it had a, it, it took a lot longer for the national television audience to react in, the, react in the same way because the national television audience is probably 80% what I would go, you know, refer to as peripheral fans, meaning they're not as 
passionate. They're not as loyal. But hey, if I'm if I'm home and there's nothing else going on, I'm flipping through the channels. Yeah, I'll watch wrestling. I kind of get a kick out of it. But they don't necessarily follow it week after week after week after week unless you give them a reason to, as we did in, you know, 96, 97, 98. But we were building that audience. So you're right. You know, Hogan, Nash, the other people that we brought in, I think, you know, producing our shows in Disney and increasing the production values. I think some of the stunts that we pulled that got a lot more mainstream media than WCW ever had in 94, 95, you know, bringing in Shaquille O'Neal and, you know, some of the other celebrities that we worked with. The cumulative effect of all those things slowly began to grow the television audience, but not at the same trajectory as we were enjoying in the live event side of our business. A moment ago, you talked about bringing Nash in, but you mean Randy Savage. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah too, much, too much coffee. No big deal. I, Let, let's talk my mouth it. is getting ahead of my brain. Here's one that I can pretty confidently say your boy. Your boy, John Paul Levesque, gave notice on January 10th that he'd be leaving for the WWF, turning down a contract believed to be between $1,500 and $1,800 a week. Apparently, Levesque's decision was based on a track record of the WWF compared to WCW when it comes to creating new stars and felt that even though WCW had plans to make him and Steven Regal the tag champs with Sherry as their manager feuding with the babyface Harlem Heat in 95, that he'd take his chances without guaranteed money since Titan is obviously going to be pushing new blood this year as hard as it can. At company meetings, Eric Bischoff was fuming over Levesque's lack of loyalty because he took him from nothing, and this is the respect he gets. And after the example set with Ricky Steamboat, I can't believe anyone can question a WCW wrestler about making a decision and even considering loyalty to the company. In hindsight, we know that uh, the man who would go on to be Hunter Hearst Helmsley or Triple H made the right call. But uh, you've said before that, man, this one really was a burr under your saddle. What do you remember about him giving you notice here? I remember he did, and I remembered I didn't really care. And I think that reporting is, again, reflective of the kind of information, either the information that was fed to, to to Meltzer that was completely untrue because people like Terry Taylor had their own agendas uh, and, and others. I'm not saying Terry Taylor was the one specifically, but I think in this case the likelihood is pretty good because of Terry's relationship with Paul Levesque at the time. I think Terry was the one that actually – campaigned pretty hard to bring Paul in. Um, and, and, you know, Terry had his own issues with the truth and reality from time to time. But it wasn't true to me. Look, I wasn't excited about hiring Paul Levesque. I really could have taken him or leaving him. And at the time, because budgets were such a big issue, when Paul came on board and because he did live on the East Coast and I was making a bit, we've talked about this before, I was really trying to concentrate our, our roster, build our roster around people that lived, you know, within close proximity of Atlanta, uh, where if they did live, you know, out of state, for example, a lot of talent that lived in Florida, the airfares were relatively inexpensive. I didn't want to be flying people in from New York or Boston or Seattle or Los Angeles because it was just really expensive. They have to do that every week or every other week. So I wasn't excited about Paul when he came in, and I wasn't that disappointed when he left. Um, not that I, I didn't think that he had talent, not that I didn't think he was all that valuable, but I didn't look at him as a guy that, you know, I invested in and I created and I gave this opportunity. That that premise is just so it's just so false. It's just not true. I I wasn't 
happy that he was leaving. I wanted him to stay, but I, this idea that he was disloyal to me and I was incensed in company meetings is just not true. I really felt like you, um, I may, maybe I'm confusing that story with Jericho. I guess it was Jericho who said that he felt like Vince could make him a star or something like that. And that annoyed you not triple H. So I'm getting, maybe I'm confusing the two. Well, I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't recall. And, and Chris, I mean, he, he, I've never talked to Paul about this. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> truth is he, Paul Levesque was in WCW for a cup of coffee. You know, he wasn't a high profile guy. So there's just not a lot of concrete, you know, stories or relationships or conversations or issues or negotiations or anything that I can really talk about because he was just there for a brief period of time. What I have heard secondhand and thirdhand, so I don't know if it's true at all, is that Paul's original intention was to come to WCW to try to get on the WWF's radar. And that makes sense to me. Paul is a very smart guy. He's a really smart guy. Um, and being that Paul grew up in, you know, I think it was Boston or wherever he grew up. I can't remember where he's from. But, you know, the Northeast where WWF was prominent. It was the brand. It was the wrestling company. And Paul was just coming out. I think it was Killer Kowalski's wrestling school and hadn't really had much exposure at the time. Um, I think he looked at WCW as a transition and a platform and an opportunity to get noticed to go to WWF. So it was a means to an end. And if he did make the right decision. He, go back and look at it. Historically, WCW, other than Sting and a couple other characters, Lex Luger, I guess, uh, WCW didn't have a track record of creating stars. He didn't really have the platform to do it, but didn't really have the history of doing it either creatively. So it was a good decision, but I, I, I think if you were to ask Paul, and, and at some point either you may have that opportunity or I might run across him and ask him because I'm curious now. I'm pretty sure he came to WCW for the sole express reason to go to the WWF. And I, I heard something similar, I think, or read something similar in an interview with Chris Jericho, that that was his ultimate goal was to get to WWF and took advantage of the exposure that WCW gave him and the fact that we made him a star to go to WWF in order to become, or WWE, a bigger star. And, you know, he did. Nothing wrong with that. Um, well, he made the right call here because, you know, when you guys are bringing in, obviously Flair's been on top for a minute, but he's been back for a couple of years. And, and now Hogan's in and Savage is in. It's getting pretty crowded at the top. Meanwhile, on the other channel, they do have guys that are probably closer to his age and body type and, he probably has a better fighting chance to, to make it there. And hindsight being what it is, he certainly did, but maybe one of those decisions that we could wish we had back was about Mark Madden. He's in the news here. Meltzer would say Mark Madden helped promote a show in Pittsburgh and was the subject of a great controversy this past week. While in the midst of promoting the show, Bischoff threatened Madden with firing on the 900 line, supposedly for his reporting that Lex Luger would be coming to WCW but probably as much for him discussing on their 900 line, the possibility of Vader shooting on Hogan and then discounting the possibility. There doesn't appear to be any truth whatsoever in regard to the Luger story. However, since the WCW hotline gained attention, when Okerlund started hinting that Brett and Yokozuna were going to jump, the new thing has been to say people are leaving, even when they're not, 
And that has happened a half dozen times over the last few weeks. Even after Madden was reprimanded for doing the same thing, Okerlund then a few days later talked about rumors of Luger uh, coming in and Okerlund and Heenan teased that Flair and Roddy Piper would jump on television as a tease to get the calls to the point that even internally people were questioning the nature of the ripoffs. The WCW hotline, it feels like was a lightning rod for, um, PR nightmares, front office headaches. It, 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 it reads sometimes like it was fucking more trouble than it's worth. Was that what you came around to? Uh, not really. And, and I think a lot of that reporting is exaggerated, uh, or in some cases not accurate. You know, this particular incident, it's just, it wasn't a significant enough, uh, of an issue for me to remember any detail of it. There were a number of occasions and I, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, again, give benefit of the doubt and say that a portion of it, maybe all of it is true to a degree. Uh, I, first of all, I, you know, the, the notion that I threaten people with firing, you know, I, I can count on one hand and have plenty of fingers left over the number of people that I've fired. I, I, I know the, the, the narrative that I was like this bombastic, you know, tyrant and, you know, fire, like to fire people and, you know, threaten people and try to intimidate people, you know, with their jobs or whatever. It's just nonsense. It's not true. Well, now know, that doesn't mean that I didn't have an issue with Mark. And, you know, this, you know, maybe we should get Mark on the show one time and, and just kind of recount some of these incidents because it, it comes up a lot, you know, with Mark Madden and the 900 lines. But, you know, he could have easily said something that I had an issue with. Um, and I could have easily, you know, had, had a conversation with him about it. I may even been, you know, pissed off about it, but to a degree, but that doesn't mean I'm going to threaten to fire anybody and let, let's call it what it is. The 900 line was not like legit news. <laughs> we admit, unlike 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 the dirt sheets that that call themselves journalists at the time, specifically Meltzer, you know, and, and and the image that they try to portray that they have this inside information that is accurate and they know the real story behind the story, which is just a fig, it's just it's it's just fiction, right? We embraced it. We knew what we were doing. We were in the wrestling business. The, 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 the 900 line was an extension of what we did in the ring. So to suggest that, you know, there was all these issues and, you know, reporting things that weren't true, well, <laughs> this is the wrestling business. Only we embraced it and we didn't try to pretend we were something that we aren't or weren't, I guess, at the time. But there were from time to time because I gave Gene Okerlund, I gave Mark Madden. The reason I hired Mark Madden eventually is because I loved the fact that he'd go into business for himself occasionally and stir sh some shit up and create controversy and create a buzz. I wanted that buzz to surround my brand and whether it be the hotline or create enough interest by using the hotline to get people to drop into the show and sample it. That was a strategy that I embraced. I wanted that controversy. I didn't want to have to, you know, put put the reins on either Mark or Gene Okerlund and say, no, nah, man, you guys got to deliver, you know, PBS, you know, McNeil, McNeil Lair news hour type of content. This bullshit. It was designed to be controversial. It was designed to almost be a parody of the dirt sheets at the time. Um, and it was, and it generated a significant amount of money. Now here's where we ran into trouble. <clears throat> 
when, and I'm just giving an example of something that may or may not have happened, but when Mark Madden would go off on a story that involved talent, sometimes Mark would step over the line. You know, Mark, and I love Mark Madden. Mark is, to this day, I love running into Mark. We have a great time when we see each other. I saw him last at the the uh, Tony Schiavone birthday party here a couple months ago. Uh, thanks, thanks to your invitation. Uh, I, and I love hanging with Mark. He's a funny, smart, intelligent guy. However, he steps over the line from time to time, as comedians often do, as a lot of people often do, and it pisses people off. Um, and every once in a while, Mark would piss off, you know, some of our upper tier talent and they'd come complaining to me and I had to, you know, soothe them and assure them that I'd deal with it and that type of thing. So I was, I was caught in that crossfire, but it's the reason I hired Mark was to do that exact same type of thing because it, it was essentially kind of, we were doing what the dirt sheets were doing, but we were doing it in house and we weren't trying to hide it. Let's, uh, let's get to the big show. Let's get to the clash of the champions. Before we do, we should mention there was a dark match. Brad and Scott Armstrong would beat Dick Slater and bunkhouse buck in eight minutes and 32. Uh, but then it's time for the big show. Uh, we've got Arn Anderson retaining his TV title over Johnny B. Bad seven minutes, 38 seconds. Meltzer really liked it. He said, this was the best match of their series uh, of matches thus far. He gave it three stars. Um, we should mention that uh, Colonel Robert Parker is here, of course, because he's managing Arn Anderson. Fans are uh, are really getting into Haku being at ringside. Johnny B. Bad's going to hit the knockout punch, but he accidentally knocks Arn Anderson out of the ring in the process. Uh, Parker would revive Anderson by pouring a, a pitcher of water on his face, which is quite the visual. Arn sold it big. And then bad starts chasing Parker around and then into the ring. And that allowed Arn to catch him with the DDT for the pin. And even though Arn's the bad guy and he's got all these, you know, bad guy supporting cast characters on the outside, the fans are cheering his win in a big way, probably like 90%. Uh, what'd you think of this match? You saw it this time for the first time in a long time. It's par for course. Johnny B bad in the opener of WCW in this era. Uh, it felt like it was a legal requirement. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I did watch it, uh, actually a couple hours ago before doing the show with you. And, uh, man, my thoughts while I was watching it was, man, it's too bad that, that Mark Merrill, uh, the character Johnny B. Bad ended up with that character. Yeah. Cause I, I, I mean, it really is. I think, and look, that was, you know, Dusty Rhodes idea. It was his vision. Uh, and again, uh, you got to put things in context. It's easy to be critical, you know, 25 years after the fact, looking back, knowing what we know now and all that kind of thing. But, you know, this was, I, I think, a remnant of the kind of over-the-top characters that were so successful in the 80s and the 90s. That's why Johnny Johnny B. Bad became Johnny B. Bad, I, I'm assuming. Again, I never talked to Dusty about this, but... I think if Mark Merrill had come in with a little less of the effeminate characteristic and the, the, the what do you call the blaster gimmick that he had? The, the, bad, he shut up, the bad blaster? The bad blaster. Um, the, the little Richard kind of persona that I think would have really worked well in the 80s. But now we're in the mid-90s and it's just not resonating. 
But set that aside and just go back and and if you you know take it if you're listening to this and you have a chance to go back to the network and watch this, go back and look at this match between Arn and and Johnny. And I think you have to recognize two things. Number one, the reason I think one of the reasons that Mark looks so good, Johnny B. Bad looks so good in this match has a lot to do with Arn Anderson. Absolutely. It's, it's a dance, right? And, and guys like Arn Anderson and Ric Flair and a handful of others have the unique ability to make someone who's pretty good look great. Somebody who's great look phenomenal. So I think a lot of credit uh, uh, in terms of the quality of this match has to go to Arnie Anderson, number one. And as the heel, he was calling the match, I'm sure. Um, but Johnny B. Bad, you know, to, to tip my hat to Johnny or Mark Merrill, I think he may have been at the top of his game right about here. Uh, he looked really, really good. And the thought crossing my mind was, wow, I would have really loved to see Mark, <clears throat> excuse me, have this opportunity with a guy like Arnie Anderson at this stage in his life without the baggage of that kind of goofy character that people just weren't relating to. People yeah. would, I think people would look back on Mark Merrill uh, much differently in terms of as a performer had he not been saddled with that gimmick that kind of just stuck with them. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, uh, this guy was a Golden Gloves boxer, so a legit badass, was married to the woman we would go on to know as Sable, who became the hottest woman in the history of the business, you know, from every metric you could possibly imagine. And then went on to be, you know, a very successful motivational speaker. What a character, what a story, what a life, and polar opposite to the on-screen character, but he still pulled it off. So credit to him for, you know, making the best of a bad situation. And I mean, he managed to leverage it into quite the career, but I'm with you. What could have been if it was a different gimmick? And I almost feel that way about a totally different situation, but you and I've talked about this with Disco Inferno, that Disco Inferno was a hell of a performer in a fairly silly gimmick, but it's just, uh, it's amazing to, to sort of look back and, and fantasy book. What if? No, and I think, you know, to, to carry this forward and another individual that we're going to talk about probably in a few moments, you know, if you make a list of the people that had, you know, incredible potential, a great look, um, great in-ring abilities and the potential to have even greater abilities with some more experience because they were young, uh, Alex Wright in another character, you know, 18 or another person, 18, 19 years old, I think, when he came to WCW, you know, we'll talk about him in a few minutes and no need to go into it now. But I think he's another character that had he not been saddled with a pretty goofy gimmick, even by early 90s standards um, or mid 90s standards, could have easily become a much, much hotter piece of business. Uh, because he had all the tools and there were a number of guys that probably fell into that category. And, you know, it wasn't lack of effort. It wasn't lack of commitment on anybody's part. It was just not really seeing what the present and the future is probably going to really react to in terms of a character and reaching back into that eighties bag of tricks, hoping that it would stick. And, you know, it wasn't just Dusty Rhodes. I did it. Hulk Hogan did it. Ric Flair did it when Ric Flair was booking, you know, so I'm not, criticizing necessarily because again it was 25 years ago um but again fantasy booking is the best way to say it what if but i think johnny b bad mark marrow is one of those characters as you said that had he come in with a different character um a little bit of a different edge to him and not that silly liberace johnny b or excuse me uh, little richard kind of gimmick he, he could have been 
people would look back at trying to be bad in a much different way than they do now. Couldn't agree more. Uh, next up, we see Mean Gene interviewing Kevin Sullivan and the Butcher, with Sullivan saying that he and Butcher are prepared for what lies ahead, and the Big Van Vader, Harley Race, and Ric Flair being there will work in their favor. And Sullivan also implies that Randy Savage might turn on Hulk Hogan in the main event. And then we get a music video of Alex Wright, where we see clips of his matches through a bunch of different TV monitors. Sort of cool for what it is at the time. And then we get, as you said, a very young Alex Wright, who had been previously talked about by announcers as being 19 years old. Here they're introducing him as being 18 years old. Meltzer would say, match was okay, though nobody cares about Wright. It's too bad. He has potential and he's got the kind of look that women would go for, but by shoving that down people's throat, it actually works in reverse. Uh, the match is okay. Seven minutes, 28 seconds, two stars is the rating that we get from Dave Meltzer. Uh, he would write Eaton kicked out of Wright's crossbody off the top rope. Then Wright kicked out of Eaton's Alabama jam before Wright scored a pin with a second crossbody. You got one of the all-time greats in there and Bobby Eaton. And he's probably the right guy to put in there with a young guy trying to get over. And, uh, this match did a fine job of that to me. It showcases what he can do in the ring, but something is amiss. And it's, I mean, is it the jacket? Is it the dancing? What do you, what are you hanging your hat on here? Well, I think first and foremost, he was brand new, you know, or relatively new. It takes a long time for a character to get over very few wrestling characters, especially very young ones that are not, have not been part of the business and don't have, you know, years and years of exposure somewhere. Um, it takes him a long time to get over. So I think his age and the fact that he was so new to the audience is part of it. I do think, as we discussed earlier, the gimmick was just horrible. It was just a horrible gimmick for him, and it didn't connect, and it didn't resonate. And before we go too much further talking about Alex, you mentioned the interview with Kevin Sullivan and The Butcher, Brutus the fucking barber beefcake. (laughs) I, I encourage... Everybody that's listening to the show, and not because I'm shilling for the WWE Network, because obviously I'm not there and never will be again, but you got to go back and watch this for pure entertainment value. This is one of those promos that is so bad, it's awesome. It is so bad, and particularly the butcher, the facial expressions, you know, I mean, it's, it is so horrible. I was laughing my ass off watching it. That's how bad it was. And, 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 and look, I'm going to admit that putting, and I, I wasn't booking. I, I wasn't the guy responsible for booking the show, but I was the guy responsible for allowing the booker to go forward with it. I could have stopped it. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't driving, but I could have easily taken the steering wheel for a moment and said, no, 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 no. We're not going in that direction. we got to go in this direction. But I didn't. And that responsibility lies solely on me. But the idea was not my idea. I had no fingerprints on that at all. I will say, however, that putting Brutus the Barber Beefcake in a main event, while probably it doesn't rise to the level of a crime against humanity, is fucking close. It's got to be on the list. It's got to be there close. It was so bad. Oh my God. It was horrible, but you got to go back and watch this promo. I think it happens around the 14 or 15 minute mark on this particular show. Go back and look at this promo. If you need a laugh, 
if you really want to see just how campy bad things could be. And it wasn't just in WCW, by the way. There was some pretty campy bad stuff that was going on in WWF at the time, too. Still is, as a matter of fact. But that's just the nature of the business, you know? Not everything is serious. Sometimes things are just so bad they're good. And this was probably, if like there was an award for being so bad it was good, this would win an Academy Award for it. Alex Wright, it's been written or said, rumored, that you thought he had the potential to be one of your next big breakout stars. I even saw somebody say, oh, Eric once said that could be his next Hulk Hogan. I called oh, bullshit God. on that. But still, uh, the international flair, you know, he's a young guy. He's good looking. He's in great shape. He's got interesting movesets. If we can, you know, polish some of this up, you could see how this guy could be a very big draw for you internationally sort of the WCW equivalent to maybe what the British bulldog was to the WWF a generation before. No. And I look, <clears throat> I don't want to be redundant and keep saying the same thing over and over again. I tend to do that sometimes when I get excited and passionate, but you know, it, it just try, if you're listening to the show and you do decide to go back and, and watch this particular episode on the network, watch, watch Alex here, you know, watch this match. And pretend, if you can, use your imagination. We all have them, some more than others. But try to try to set aside the goofy gimmick and the and the dancing and and you know the the boy toy gimmick. And by the way, I think that was your father-in-law that was that was his vision for Alex. Um, set all that aside and just look at the physical talent that you see in the ring. Yeah, and he was a great-looking young kid. I mean, he, whatever he was, 18, 19, 20, whatever he was, I don't remember, but great looking kid, amazing physique and was able to really do a lot of tremendous things in the ring for a 19 or 20 year old kid. So much potential. Now, if you look at this again and, and, and try to be objective and help him out while you're watching this by losing that silly ass gimmick and just look at the. The, the performer in the ring, I think he did have a ton of potential, you know, to suggest that I would say he could be our next Hulk Hogan. That wasn't me. I'm not going to assign it to who I think it probably was or could have been, but I guarantee you it wasn't me. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the, Alex did have a ton of potential. Again, like Merrill, uh, Johnny B. Bat settled with a horrible gimmick that killed him coming out of the shoot that you probably couldn't recover from unless you made a concerted effort to do so. And there was no effort to do so. Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk about, uh, Gene Okerlund. He's going to recap the issues surrounding the Hogan Vader match for super brawl before he welcomes out Vader for an interview. Vader here is going to accuse Hogan of dodging him saying his time's running out. Uh, race was not here with Vader because he was in an automobile accident that permanently ended his career as a manager. We haven't talked about that much here on the show, but, uh, it is a, a relatively famous story, uh, in, in wrestling circles. What do you remember about Harley race and, and him no longer being an on-screen character for you guys? <clears throat> I, I don't remember the details. I'm not sure that I really knew the details at the time, other than the fact that he was in a, in a serious accident and that he, you know, physically he would no longer be able to to participate. I, I remember that, but the details of the actual accidents and how it happened, where it happened and all that, I, I'm not sure I ever knew. And certainly if I did, I don't remember now. Uh, but it, 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 you know, look, Harley was valuable for a lot of reasons. <clears throat> and I think of all the managers that I've ever worked with, 
you know, whether it was in AWA or in WCW, um, I think Harley Race was probably the only one that was what I would consider to be a legitimate manager because Harley really was instrumental in so many occasions in helping manage a, a, a combustible Vader. Vader was a, he was sometimes very difficult to deal with as a lot of top talent were, by the way, not just Vader, but oftentimes when, you know, guys would get to a certain level, um, their competitiveness and Vader was very competitive. Leon white, you know, former, you know, college standout football player played for the Denver Broncos. I believe he was a competitor. He was probably a competitor from the time he was six or eight years old. And oftentimes when you get people that are highly competitive and you put them in high profile situations, they can be a little bit tough to deal with. And that's not only true with professional wrestlers. It's true with musicians. It's true with actors. It's probably true in a lot of occasions. But Harley Race was one of the few people that Leon White, a.k.a. Vader, was afraid of and trusted and would listen to. So whenever there was an issue with whether it be finishes or anything that would come up, we would go to Harley to help fix it. Whereas, you know, other managers, guys like Jimmy Hart and, and, you know, Sherry, Sensational Sherry and, you know, Robert Parker and all the other, you know, the characters that we, we identify as managers were props. They were they're just there to help add. They, they were the they were the they were that green shit that they the salary or whatever it is, parsley that they put on your plate when you order a steak to make it look a little prettier uh, garnish. But but um that was not the case with Harley Race. Harley was a legitimate manager. And and he was oftentimes instrumental in the ring. Harley could do towards the end of his career before the accident. Harley, Harley was still whatever he was, 54, 55 years old at that time, still doing some amazing, taking some amazing bumps in the ring. Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Ric Flair. Because he's going to come ringside here with two women. He's going to make peace with Vader. Takes a seat in the crowd. And Heenan welcomes Flair back to WCW. You may remember uh, he lost a retirement match to Hulk Hogan uh, back in October, Halloween Havoc. Next, we see Harlem Heat retain the WCW tag titles, beating Marcus Alexander Bagwell and the Patriot. Nine minutes and 45 seconds. Meltzer would say that all four worked hard. And he says uh, Bagwell was worked over most of the way. The match was better than average, but the finish was really messed up. With Sherry on the apron, holding her shoe, waiting for a spot that Booker T had called for 15 seconds, which just made everyone look stupid. Sherry took an outrageous bump when they finally got to it. As Bagwell reversed T's whip and T got hit with a high heel shoe. Bagwell had T pinned, but Stevie Ray kicked Bagwell in the face. He went over backwards and T pinned him two and a quarter stars. Definitely a miscue here, uh, but otherwise decent action. I don't know why, but. Uh, Bagwell and the Patriot just didn't work for me as a team here. No, you know, Dell Wilkes, uh, AKA the Patriot, a great performer. We've talked to him about him, you know, before in the show had a lot of the ingredients, if not almost all of the ingredients to become a big star with probably the exception of, uh, his mic work was just never really up to, up to par. But again, you know, watching this early this morning, it was a little bit of a, again, it was that throwback character, you know, throwback to the 80s type of thing. 
you know, Marcus Bagwell, uh, you know, he's, he was always like right on the cusp, you know, again, a little bit like Alex Wright, you know, good looking guy, great body, great physique, but was just never able to really break through to the, that next level uh, in terms of connection with the audience. But, you know, the match was, you know, my, again, you know, watching this it reminded me why, you know, Harlem Heat so deserves to be in the Hall of Fame because they've done so much in their careers. And uh, in, in, again, I was reflecting, you know, seeing Booker on the on the on the ship, almost called it a boat again, talking to him about what he's doing. Clearly, he's you know he's very active in WWE um, and very successful as a broadcaster, which I'm so proud of because he's so great at it. But he's also calling boxing. He's got his own radio show. He's got his own wrestling. Uh, uh, program or school and, and going on down in Houston. There's so many good things that Booker T is doing, and I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity to work with him and Stevie. Uh, really, really uh, remarkable tag team. Uh, one of the all-time greats. Glad that in more recent years they've started to finally get some of their just due and join the uh, Hall of Fame. Let's talk about... Uh... <laughs> Gene Okerlund is back on the show. He's all over this one. He's going to interview Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and Jimmy Hart. Hogan's going to task Jimmy with being the lookout with Vader and Flair at ringside. Uh, and then, uh, Gene would hype super brawl five pushing. It's going to happen in Baltimore. And that the only match signed so far is for the world title with Hogan and Vader for the WCW championship. But if you want to hear what's happening behind the scenes right now, call the hotline. Uh, next up, we've got Sting and Avalanche. This is going to be a referee stoppage and what Meltzer would call a weird finish in five minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, it is a little interesting. Um, Meltzer would write Avalanche controlled early with power moves. After a collision, Avalanche went down and Sting fell against the ropes and went down accidentally headbutting Avalanche in the groin. Sting then used four Stinger splashes before putting on the Scorpion. Avalanche was shaking his head and tapping out like a concession, but the special referee guardian angel didn't call it. So Nick Patrick came out and stopped the match ruling that Avalanche had submitted angel and Patrick start arguing with angel saying, Hey, I'm the ref in charge. And then angel attacks Patrick and sting starts punching angel. And then avalanche and angel start to work on sting and angel pulls his belt out. And then of course, Bagwell and Patriot make the save. Sort of a weird deal here. Uh, after the match, too, Mean Gene is, is interviewing Angel and says something like, You're not going back to Big Bubba Rogers. And then, of course, at the end of the interview, he says he is now Big Bubba Rogers. Sort of a weird way to make a change like this that our Guardian Angel character is being abandoned and now we're going back to our. First gimmick that we, you may remember Meltzer says, talk about life going full circle match was watchable, but easily the worst thing on the show star in a quarter. Why was the guardian crapping out here? You know, it was a combination of, uh, of a couple of things. It just, it really wasn't resonating. Uh, the idea of creating, and again, people may have heard this before on the show, but you know, the guardian angels still are, by the way, it's an organization that still exists in New York city to this day. And last time I was in New York city a couple months ago for a meeting, 
uh, I was walking around you know, later in the evening looking for a sushi bar. And, you know, I saw a couple of guardian angels that still wore the red berets and the T-shirts that identified them or the jackets that identified them as guardian angels. And for people that don't know, the, the guardian angels are uh, it's an organization of volunteers who really patrol the streets. They're not armed. They're not law enforcement, uh, but they patrol the streets to, to, you know, keep an eye out for uh, crimes and and. and report it as such to the police or take physical action if necessary in the heat of the moment until, until law enforcement arrives. So it's a legitimate organization. It was founded by a gentleman by the name of Curtis Sliwa, who back in the 90s was getting a tremendous amount of national publicity because of his work in the Guardian Angels. So, you know, there was a lot of media around the Guardian Angels. And Curtis was really excited, you know, to get some exposure for the Guardian Angels on WTBS, was excited about working with uh, Ray trailer, but it, it just didn't connect and we needed, uh, we needed to go a different direction with Ray creatively because we needed heels. So it was just a, it was an evolution. It was timing. It was the right thing to do at the right time. I agree. Uh, the finish, like so many finishes in WCW at the time, they almost seem like afterthoughts. You know, there's just been so many times that you and I have talked about these shows or I've gone back to watch a show and, you know, if it's a 15 minutes mat, 15 minute match, you know, 14 minutes of it is really pretty damn good, but the last 60 seconds kill it because the finishes are usually botched or overly complicated or almost always involve outside interference. Um, it's probably a race uh, to the to the bottom to, to determine whether it's outside interference in general or a ref bump. It's just it was historic WCW booking. Um, and lack of creative when it came to finishes. And that was true across the boards, including yours truly. So um, that was one of, the, one of the big weaknesses, you know, that WCW always had was finishes. And this was, not only was his match pretty bad, and let's face it, with a guy like Avalanche, it's going to be hard to have, you know, any kind of a match that people think was a decent match or a good match or a great match would be probably impossible to reach. But this one was particularly bad, made only worse by a fucked up finish. Let's keep it moving here and let's talk about uh, our main event. We're finally here. Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage on one side, Kevin Sullivan and the Butcher on the other. Oh, I'm sorry you had to hear that. Yeah, it's bad, man. 11 minutes, four <laughs> seconds. Uh, as you might imagine, here's a surprise. Hogan gets the hot tag, gets the old boot to the face on butcher. Savage drops the elbow. Hogan does the leg drop. Nobody's getting up after that one, two, three. And after the match, Vader jumps in, knocks Savage out of the ring. Hogan punches him three times, but of course, Vader doesn't sell any of that shit. And then he power bombs him, but Hogan no sells that and just hops right back up. And then Savage and Hogan have double team Vader. And at some point, uh, Vader rips his pants, which is kind of funny, I guess. I, did, uh, I didn't know if you noticed that or if that was reported, but yeah, he took that big bump and the whole ass end of his pants opened up. So it was kind of funny. Jimmy Hart throws each guy a chair and Vader backs off and they're posing to end the show. Meltzer would write, whatever the purpose was for Flair to be there and the plans of what to do were thwarted for reasons that are unclear. Although I guess maybe it was just to be a tease at this point. Star and a half. Uh, any, um, discussion that you remember about Vader and Hogan, not really wanting to sell for each other, or is that all the design and everybody's doing exactly what they're supposed to, do to get to super brawl and nobody had any issues at all. 
you know, I don't know. Again, I didn't lay out the match. I wasn't the agent for the match. I wasn't involved in laying it out. So I can't honestly um, suggest that I knew how people were, you know, people meaning the principals in the match were reacting to each other. I, I think the whole, you know, Vader not wanting to work with Hogan or Hogan not wanting to work with Vader and, you know, the the anticipation that we were building up you know, as to what would happen when these two finally got into the ring. I think a lot of that was intentionally, you know, exaggerated on our part to create interest. I, I would guess, this is just a guess, um, that both Hogan and Vader were, were playing into that, um, again, to build interest and to see what would happen when they actually did get in the ring. Um, and here's what's interesting, going back to, you know, Flair being at, at ringside and Vader. I really like that aspect of this. I mean, there was a lot of things about this match, almost all of it having to do with the fact that Ed Leslie was in it. Um, there was a lot of things that I, you know, again, giving it a little bit of a pass because of the context of the time and all of those things, which you have to do. But one of the things I really did like about this match and the way it was laid out is that there was a tremendous potential there with Flair and Vader, you know, at ringside. And I really wish, you know, we would, looking back at it now with 2020 hindsight, in 2020, by the way, that we would have done something more with that. Because it is as bad as, uh, I don't want to say bad, is unfulfilling as the finish to this match was, had there been an inciting incident at the end of it involving Flair and Vader and Hogan and Savage, no one would re have remembered the match or the weaknesses of the match. The match would have been a setup to a really cool kind of inciting moment that would have led to Super Brawl. And we totally missed that opportunity. I have no idea why. You know, but I love the idea of, you know, the anticipation. We, we story anticipation, you know, reality surprise action really knocked the anticipation out of the park by having Vader and Flair there and just let the air out of it, which is really too bad. It was a missed opportunity. Overall, um, it's been written that for whatever reason, Hogan wasn't too trusting of working with Vader. Uh, Vader definitely worked a, a more stiffer style, a realistic style. And a lot of times that meant you're getting hit with some live rounds. I have a feeling at some point he may have turned to you and rubbed the old Fu Manchu and said, that doesn't work for me, brother. Not really. Let me, I'm going to make one thing clear. I mean, look, the fact and the truth is that Hogan wasn't excited about the prospects of working with Vader because their styles didn't mesh. And Hogan would be the first one to tell you that he has he had his own style that worked for him, brother. It worked for WWF, brother. It worked ultimately for WCW, brother. And that style and that presentation in the ring was not something that he felt Vader was capable or interested in accommodating. And that was, but that was more of a creative issue than it was any kind of fear. Hogan is a much tougher individual than people think. 
people think because he liked to work the way he worked and his presentation was very animated. And, and, and by the way, he made tens of millions of dollars in the process and probably hundreds of millions for WWF in the process. So it obviously was a formula that worked very well for Terry Bollea, the character Hulk Hogan. But it wasn't because he was physically afraid of anybody. Uh, or not capable of of going in there and hanging and banging. And if you don't believe me, and, and if you're listening to this and you think, well, the only reason Eric Sane is because he's close friends with Hulk Hogan, go back and look at some of his matches in Japan. The, but Hulk Hogan didn't want to have those kind of matches for the U.S. domestic audience because he believed it didn't work. So, you know, again, go back, look, it's available. You know, search some of his matches with Antonio Inoki or anybody else in Japan. You'll see a much different, very physical and very capable uh, Hulk Hogan when it came to that type of uh, shoot style match. Uh, it wasn't because he didn't, he was fearful for himself or physically. It was because he just didn't believe that Vader's style would work with him in the ring. So one of the reasons why Hulk really wouldn't have come to WCW and work with anybody else right out of the shoot other than Ric Flair because Hulk knew that Ric Flair could work Hulk's style of a match and make him look phenomenal in the process. Well, something that didn't look phenomenal is the Wrestling Observer Reader Poll for this particular Clash of the Champions. It got 17.1% thumbs in the middle, 9% thumbs up, and an overwhelming 73.9% thumbs down. What say you? You watched this one back for the first time in 25 years. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Uh, I, I would say thumbs in the middle. And again, I'm 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 trying. Look, I'm I'm not objective. You know, I'm 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 trying to be as objective as I can be. But I readily admit, because I was involved in it and my fingerprints are on it, I'm, I'm probably looking at it a little differently than the average viewer. But when I watch it back in the context of the time 25 years ago compare it to what was going on in WWF 25 years ago it's not nearly as bad as i think the readers of you know Dave's diarrhea sheet would suggest it, it would be like Conrad it's like if we took a poll of all my twitter followers oh god and were to ask what is your opinion of Dave Meltzer what do you think my Twitter followers, the Please. vast majority, what do you think they're going to say? Please don't do that. Thumbs up or thumbs down. No, right? let's just not do that. But th- no, but, And I'm not going to do that because he's not worth the time or effort. But I'm, again, trying to put this in context. So when we hear the statement, well, readers of The Observer gave an overwhelmingly thumbs down. Well, of course they did because they're pandering to Dave just like my, my Twitter followers would probably pander to a degree to me. Well, a large degree. So the whole what the Wrestling Observer poll says or didn't say was really fucking irrelevant. You know, the only thing that really mattered was the money and the growth and where we were going. And I think is is average, I think, at best that this show was. Um, it was another step in the right direction. And in, in another indication that WCW was on the right path, not perfect, not even close to perfect, but certainly on the right path. And it certainly 
helped us with you know the executives that were in the audience at Nappy. It certainly helped us with advertisers. It certainly helped us with our fan base and and our core our our, our broad fan base, not the hardcore dirt sheet reading, you know, basement dwelling types, but you know the peripheral fan, which was eighty percent of the audience, not the probably ninety percent of the audience or ninety five percent of the audience, not the vocal five percent that voted thumbs up or thumbs down. Well, I, uh, I'm looking forward to next week. We're going to do a hashtag ask Eric anything, but before we get there, we let our followers on Twitter ask any question they wanted about this show in particular. And without question, the best question, uh, came from big red six Oh three. And we, I don't know that mean you've ever talked about this. Savage wakes up Hogan from the sleeper by Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake with the flying elbow who booked this shit. <laughs> I was wondering if that was going to come up, and I was surprised, frankly, that you glanced over it as you were, you know, describing that. Because when I saw it, and again, this is 25 years ago, you know, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since then. So I didn't remember this match. I don't remember the finish of it. I don't remember anything about it. So when I'm watching it this morning, and I saw Savage go up to the top, I go, oh my God. I don't remember Randy Savage turning on a Hulk. This is crazy. This is going to be good. And he drops an elbow from the top turnbuckle, and Hogan snaps up like he just had a shot of adrenaline or one of those those paddles they put on your heart if they think you're having a heart attack. Just bam, he shot up, and he was sprung into action. I thought, wow. I like. I would have. I wish I would have been in the room when they were laying that one out. <laughs> That was I mean, crazy. Hogan is a master salesman to be able to sell, you know, Savage's well-guarded finish as just, no, let me make it my wake-up spot, brother. But <laughs> it worked, and uh, we hope that you guys uh, enjoyed the show we put together. For Fire your question off right there and stay tuned next week. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review if you think we've earned it. And stay tuned every Monday right here on Westwood One for 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Thanks for checking. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.